My name is Trevor Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb. And today, um, if it's okay, this is not like in my notes. This is all free for just a moment. But uh, this week, I had a chance to kind of get away for a little bit to Phoenix, Arizona. I took a couple days uh, for a bit of kind of rest and relaxation, kind of some restoration. And um, while I was there, I didn't realize how much I needed that time. Um, but during that time, there's a lot of things I felt like the Lord really kind of like said and did in my life. But one of the things that I feel like I came back with was just a, a, a realization of how thankful I am for this church community, how grateful I am for this congregation. And so um, as I stand up here this morning and as we open God's word together and allow him to teach us something new, I just want you to know like I do not take this lightly. Um, I, I consider this a great honor. And so to be able to be with you this morning, I'm really, really, really grateful today. And, um, you know, last weekend when we gathered here for Easter Sunday, we had an amazing weekend. Who was here last weekend for Easter? It was an awesome, like just a really, really great time together. And um, there was a buzz in the room and the place was packed. We had overflow. Sorry for my was an overflow, but it was like a really, really, really good time. And um, every Easter I come away from that experience just so thankful for this church and all that God's doing. And but unfortunately, I'm afraid that some of us in the room, when it comes to Easter, when it comes to this kind of season every year, we, we see it as just kind of like a date on the calendar. Like Easter's coming, and so we go buy our pastel matching outfits for our kids and everything, and you know, all, all these Cadbury eggs, if you have any left over, I'll take them from you. Um, just let me know, I'd humbly do it to help your family. So, um, but we, we do all this kind of preparation for Easter, and we, we, we circle the date on our calendar, and we come to church on Sunday morning, and then after church, we go and eat a great meal together, and we hide Easter eggs, and we do the whole thing, and my, my, my struggle and my wrestling is with that a lot of us afterwards, when Monday comes, it's back to business as usual. It's, it's a holiday. It's an event. It's something that we look forward to, but after that thing happens, too often, it's just kind of a distant memory. But Easter is not just about a day on a calendar. It's not just about a day that we celebrate as the church, within the four walls of the church. Easter is a, about a realization that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Like, it, it changes everything. It should impact our day every single day, every minute, every hour. It's not just an event and a date on a calendar. It's a, it's a new way of seeing the world. The closest thing I can think about to what this is like is when you have a baby. And if you're a family in the room and you have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. But when Jen and I got pregnant, I remember there was such excitement around this for our, for our firstborn. And we did all kinds of things. We, we put the due date on the calendar and we circled it and we began all kinds of preparations but before we were pregnant, our life had a certain kind of way about it, a certain cadence to it. Before we had children, we operated in a totally different way. We would stay out as long as we wanted to. And we would go eat fun restaurants. And we would buy dumb stuff. And we would go on vacation. And we had a house that was relatively clean. And then we got pregnant. To be clear, she got pregnant. And suddenly there's this date on this calendar, this due date that we have now, and everything begins to change. But there's all kinds of planning that went into it. We began to plan, pack bags, pick a name, went shopping. You know, all these things in preparation for this date on the calendar. But what we found is when you have a child, you recognize it's not just a date on the calendar. It's not just a due date. But when that child comes into your life, it changes everything. There's, there's a shift in your reality. And so there's gone are the days of sleeping in. Gone are the days of sleeping, period. 
you know, now you're not just buying anything you want to. It feels like everything we buy is like diapers or formula. And we go out to eat still, but it's like Chick-fil-A and Happy Meals for days now instead. Your house will never be clean again. And vacations are like a thing of the past. And you say things to each other like, remember that time we did that thing by ourselves? Wasn't that great? And you talk about it longingly, but and it's been wonderful. I would never trade my children for anything. But there is a, a new cadence in life, new priorities, new responsibilities when a child comes into the home. It's not just a date on the calendar. It's a whole new reality. And so for those of us this morning who consider themselves to be Christians, who were here last weekend for Easter and celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, it is not about a date on the calendar. The resurrection of Jesus changes our reality. It changes the way we exist within the world. We are resurrection people. And we come on a Sunday morning, it's a reminder, this is resurrection day again. And tomorrow, again, and again. Jesus is alive, if you don't know this. Like, he's alive right now. And he's working in your life right now. And what that means is, you no longer have to be owned by the old sin that used to own you. You can have self-control in your life. You don't have to live with shame and guilt anymore. You can trust that the best years are ahead of you. You can live in deep, abiding joy. You can have true peace. You can be empowered to be more patient. Kindness could be your norm. You could be crazy generous. You could be a better husband, better wife, mother, father, child, sibling because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's a new reality that we are invited to live into each and every day, every minute, every hour of every day. And here's the thing. If some of you this morning consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, that shift should show up in your life. It should be a reality in your life. It should be obvious. It should be clear. And if it's not, that's a problem. I want to be very clear this morning. This is not meant to be a condemnation in any kind of way. This is meant to be a celebration and a reminder that is offered to us. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is too sweet, too wonderful, too powerful, too beautiful to not allow it to take its full effect within our lives. Easter is not a holiday. It is not an event. It is a new reality that we are invited to live into. Paul talks about this often as he writes in the New Testament. As a man who experienced the kind of life shift that takes place through recognizing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you have Paul who goes from being one who is stamping out the gospel, trying everything he can to make sure that it does not spread, to becoming the greatest proponent for it. Writes most of the New Testament. And so Paul in particular is writing to a city called Philippi, the early church there, as you may notice, the book of the Philippians, and he's writing about this resurrection reality this new way of living. He begins in chapter one by making these connections between the suffering of the church at that point in time because of persecution and the suffering of Christ. He, he unites the two, he connects the two. Here's what he says in chapter one. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. It's not just a belief, it's a new reality. And the suffering that you're experiencing, church, Paul says, it's uniting you with the suffering that Jesus had. This is a common theme for Paul. He says it over and over and over again throughout the books that he writes in the New Testament. 
And he doesn't just connect the suffering of Jesus with the suffering of the church, but he connects the new life of Jesus and the new life of the church. The resurrection of the Jesus and the resurrection life that is offered to us. For Paul, to be a follower of Jesus means that you willingly, gladly die to your sinful, broken selves. And you come alive like Jesus did through the resurrection and a new way of living. Paul says it like this. It's like being united with Christ. You're united with Christ in this new resurrection reality. It's kind of like when I was a kid, um, I, I grew up in a really wonderful little Methodist church in Indiana, and there was a room in that church that where the choir would go, and they would practice and rehearse and whatnot, and there was like a children's choir that I was in a little bit when I was a kid, and so I would go to that room too. Then at the room, there was a piano, and there was, you know, uh, like a, a sound system and all kinds of stuff, whatever was needed, but there was a little metal object in there too that I remember seeing as a kid, and if you would take that metal object and you were to like uh, pound it on something, it would vibrate in your hand, it would make a sound. It, would, it was a tuning fork. And so if you, if you hit that tuning fork, whatever note that was, you would hear it reverberate and, and you could tune things to it. So if you wanted to tune a piano, that's how you would do it, with a tuning fork. You would use that thing to tune the piano to make sure it was all in tune. And if you had 100 pianos, the way you would tune them to one another is you would not take a one piano, tune it to the tuning fork, and then tune the other pianos to that piano and the next piano to that piano and the next piano to that piano. You would never do that. You would tune all of the pianos to what? The tuning fork. And if those pianos are in tune with that one thing, they actually can't help it. They become in tune with one another. So when Paul says you are united with Christ through his, through his suffering, but also his resurrection as a Christian, what, what he means is your life is being tuned to, to Jesus. That every part of who you are, the way you relate in the world, the way you see things, the way you speak, the way you act, what you value, it's being tuned to Jesus, like a, like a tuning fork to a piano. And when you have a church full of people who are not tuning to one another, but we're tuning to this, this tuning fork who is Jesus, then we, we in turn become united with one another. So Paul says that the overall goal here of this new resurrection life is to be in tune to Christ to be united with him. And so it's out of this understanding that he represents here in chapter one that Paul begins to write chapter two. And so in chapter two, verses one through four, with that in mind, he writes this. Therefore, because of all the tuning fork conversation, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. So Paul says, if you see this resurrection of Jesus as a new reality for you, if you have any encouragement in being tuned to Jesus, if you are comforted by his expression of love, if you have the spirit dwelling in you, if you have a sense of tenderness and compassion, then it will be demonstrated in your life in a very specific way. And he says at the end here, then here's what he describes, humility, a humble nature, who doesn't see ourselves as greater than anyone else, but instead puts others ahead of ourselves. Paul says, this is how this resurrection reality is expressed within your life. If you have any common sharing, if you have any understanding of God's love and his compassion and his tenderness and his mercy, then may it show up in your life 
through humility. You see, being united with Christ results in a, hum- in a humble life. Being united with Christ, being tuned to him, results in a humble life. But what's the essence of humility? How does it express itself? What does it look like? It's not just thinking less of yourself. In fact, it's the opposite. It's actually thinking highly enough of yourself that you would rather think of others more important than you. That if you are so valuable and wonderful, you would see others with the same kind of value and wonderful nature as well. It's humility. It's the outflow of living the resurrection reality within your life. I had the privilege, privilege just recently to, over spring break to go with a bunch of high school students here from the church to go backpacking in North Carolina. It was a great time. I'm happy to announce there were no bears at all, none. We saw no bears. And um, we had a wonderful time uh, at a place called John Rock in Brevard, North Carolina. If you've ever been there before, it's a beautiful place to go. And one of our days, we went hiking. So we hiked for multiple hours, multiple miles at the backside of a mountain called John Rock. And when you get to the top, there's a view there from John Rock that is stunning. I would argue it's one of the best views in all of Pisgah National Forest because you can see Looking Glass Rock from there. You can see the Blue Ridge Parkway going by. It is wonderful. And so, but when you hike, it kind of like sneaks up on you. So we're hiking as a group. Everybody's loud, laughing, having fun. There's like 15 of us or something. And all of a sudden you kind of turn a corner and then you come out onto this rock bald and all of a sudden, boom, it's like everything is clear. You can see for miles right in front of you. And what's so funny to me, and I experienced this in multiple different ways, Whenever you're in a place like that, when you walk out and then just boom, there's all this like magnificent view and all of this stuff you're experiencing is beautiful. Everybody got so quiet, like from laughing and joking and being allowed to all of a sudden everybody's like, wow, whoa. And everybody starts whispering to each other. Isn't that weird? Like, why are we, why are we whispering right now? But it, in some way, it's some kind of response to the, to the grand beauty and the, the massive thing that you're seeing in this, this amazing uh, reality that you're a part of. If you've ever been out west and seen beautiful things out west, if you've ever been, you know, like on the east coast during the fall when the leaves begin to turn, I mean, the, 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 the response is always the same. We, we're like, wow, whoa. We whisper to each other. Because what we are seeing is so big, and what it does to us, I would argue, is it makes us recognize how small we are in the grand scheme of things. Where maybe because of your workplace or your family or just kind of the things you experience each and every day, you think you're pretty great. Like you're a gift to everyone around you. But then you go experience something like this and you're like, wait a minute. It reorients us for just a moment to recognize we are so small. I would argue that this humble nature that comes upon us, that Paul writes about here, has to do with us experiencing the beauty of the cross, the beauty of Jesus' death and resurrection, where all we can do is just kind of stand before it and say, wow, I can't, I can't believe it. That I would be so loved, so valuable, so important in Christ's eyes that he would give his life for me. And, and not just for me, but, but for all of us. When we begin to see the cross in this kind of manner and in this kind of way, it changes everything. This humble nature becomes a part of who we are. It really is the reason that we're celebrating this morning with this tent right outside. Doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and many others that I could probably name. 
We're so grateful for the ways over the past two years that many individuals in our midst this morning have selflessly and humbly served and showed up at hospitals and doctor's offices and and nurses' stations and everywhere in between over the past two years and selflessly have served your community because you saw people as worthy and valuable to the point where you were willing to sacrifice in all kinds of ways, in family, safety, your time, your energy. And in so doing, it's the reason this morning we wanted to say thank you, like truly thank you for what you've done. And you may not even recognize it, but what you have exemplified for us is the remarkable marks of a Christian who is surrendered to the resurrection reality. It's humility. Maybe you didn't even know this is what you were doing as you served over the past two years, but as we look at it, as I look at it, I'm like, wow, that's what humility looks like. That's what Paul finds to be so important to us who understand what Jesus has done for us. My prayer for my church, this church, is as we walk in the community, as we serve people and love people here and all around the world, that people would look at us and say, those are people who have humble hearts, who practice humility, who are incredibly generous, who don't have to be first in line, who don't have to be right, who don't have to have the recognition, but we are marked by humility. Paul says to live into the resurrection reality, not just a date on the calendar, but every day of our lives, every minute, every hour, it is first marked by humility, believing that people around you are valuable and worth it. Believing that. But Paul continues on in chapter two. Philippians two, he goes on to clarify what this humble life then looks like. In Philippians chapter two, then verse five through eight, here's what he says. In your relationships then with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross." So Paul says, if you have any unity in the spirit, any recognition of God's grace, compassion, and mercy, and love, if you have any of that, then would you value people around you in humility? And then he says, let me give you an example of what this looks like. His name's Jesus. You may have heard of him. And Jesus lived this out in a very specific way. But Paul begins this section in verse five by saying this, in your relationships with one another, What Paul is saying is, you don't do the faith life, you don't do your life in a vacuum, but it takes place in relationship with people. There's no such thing as a private faith, not according to Paul. He believes our faith plays out in relationship with one another. So it's in your homes, it's in your offices, in the grocery store, on the interstate, I'm just telling you, Sunday morning, you Me, we must recognize the resurrection reality that is given to us plays out in relationship. It's the lab. It is the playing field. It is the battleground where our genuine faith is purified and solidified. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Now, this word that he uses, this word mindset, is a very specific Greek word. It's the Greek word phroneo. Everyone say phroneo. Keep working on it, Um, humbly, just kidding. 
It was a really great word. And, and literally it means to side with someone or to share an opinion with someone. When you have the same phroneo, the same mindset as Christ, it means that we side with him. We have the same opinion as him. It's the kind of thing that happens when you hear someone say something and you're like, oh yeah, I like that idea. I'm with that. I can join you on that. And so like this morning, if I were to say to this room, hey, listen, after church, Moses the stop. That's where we're going to. And the ones that giggled because you're like, yeah, that's exactly where I'm going. The shared mindset. After church, Moe's, I'll see you there. It's from Neo. If I were to say this morning, hey, listen, Encanto is the best Disney movie that has ever been made, full stop. No? Lion King? Uh, Moana. Okay. Thank you. See, the shared mindset right there. I didn't do well at nine either. There's probably a lot of movies we could agree upon or disagree upon, but it's Froneo, and we're like, yes, I agree with that. If I were to say to you this morning, Hayden and Michaela and Brett are pretty good singers, would you agree? Yes. Okay, they get claps. Good job, guys. But it's Froneo. It's, it's, it's an agreement. It's a siding with. It's having and sharing the same opinion. Paul says what we must do as Christians is share the same mindset as Jesus. Agree with him. Side with him. And Paul goes on to describe what this mindset looks like. He said, Jesus did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus didn't look at his, his equal nature with God and say, I will use this and I will, I will take this power for myself. Instead, he laid aside heaven. Equal with God, immeasurable power, immeasurable influence, and he laid it all aside. Not only did he lay it aside, but then he came to earth as a human being. He pulled on skin and took on the nature of a servant and eventually became obedient to God's call all the way to the cross, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. So if you want to know what the mindset Paul's looking, uh, talking about, he's like, this is what it looks like. Can you share that mindset? Can you look at people around you and have the shared mindset of Jesus? Are you willing to lay aside your power, your influence, whatever's been given to you in order that you might serve someone else? Are you willing to take on the nature of a servant to serve someone else above yourself and ahead of yourself? Because it's the same mindset as Christ. If we share that. You see, unity with Jesus doesn't just express itself in humility, like believing people are valuable, but it's actually being united with Christ that results in servanthood, demonstrating that people are valuable. It's not just something that I believe in my head intellectually. It's something that I want to live out in my life. And so when Paul writes in Philippians 2, he's referencing something that's very familiar in the first century Christian church. It's not as familiar to us. And if it is, it's in a negative manner, things that's taken place within our country in the past. When he talks about this servant nature. What he's talking about is in the ancient Near East, there would be a servant in the household. And this servant would be a lower, lower social order. And they would do the job that no one wanted to do. In particular, when a visitor would come to the house after walking through the deserts of the ancient Near East, they would walk into the house and this servant would, would stoop down and they would wash the feet of those who would come to visit. You may remember at the end of Jesus' life, just before he is crucified, what's the last thing he does with his disciples? Has a meal together, and then he washes their feet. He takes on this nature. He lives this nature out. You see, a couple of years ago, um, Pastor Jeff and I 
had the chance to go to Liberia, West Africa. And so it was just Jeff and I for 10 days in Africa. You can imagine how fun that was. I'm just kidding. It was very fun, actually. Uh, but we traveled together, really long plane flights to West Africa, and we spent time with wonderful people and partners that we have here as a part of our church. We're building homes there right now, actually, in continued partnership with them. But we were invited to come by an organization called ILI, and they have a training uh, for pastors. And it covers all kinds of things when it comes to being a pastor within a church. Um, you know, very basic things like how do you have a relationship with God all the way down to how do you live this out? How do you practice this? And so Jeff and I were given different chapters of the book that we would teach then while we were in Africa alongside of other African pastors who would teach other chapters too. So we get there and we end up in kind of middle of nowhere, West Africa. And uh, there's a gymnasium, tin roof, super hot. And there are about 100 men and women who travel to come to this training, pastors from around the country, around um, Liberia. And many of them had walked hours, if not miles, and days to be there for this training. And so we trained all week long and we shared all kinds of things. I'll be very honest with you, it was incredibly, it felt even silly that I would sit there and talk about what sacrifice looks like in serving the church, considering those who I was, talk, I was speaking to. It looked, it looked silly that I would talk about kind of like the dedication that it takes to love God and love people when when it was being demonstrated right before me. It's easy for me. I drive five minutes here on a Sunday morning and I pick out a wardrobe. And asked my wife, it was a very tough decision this morning. And it turns out I got it right because like 13 people have this exact same shirt on this morning. <laughs> but the people I was speaking to did not have the same experience. It was, it's hard for them to do the things that God has called them to. And at the very end of the week then, Jeff and I were given a basin of water and a towel and Jeff and I spent time washing the feet of all 100 of these men and women who had traveled to come and be a part of this training. It was one of the most humbling things I've ever done in my life. Kneeling down in front of these men and women who literally miles, if not days, had traveled here in the dust and dirt of Africa with sandals on their feet, washing their dirty feet. And I watched as the water in my basin went from like clean and clear to just dirty and cloudy. And I recognized, I mean, tears streaming down my face for every person that washed their feet, recognizing like, I do not deserve to be doing this. And to watch this kind of power structure turn on its head. And for me to have the chance to serve those who were serving in such powerful ways already was incredibly humbling. And it was in this African village that I felt united with Jesus, sharing in his mindset of what it must look like to to give away whatever privilege, status, power you may have in order to serve those because you simply love them. And you want to have the mindset of Christ. And here's the thing. It's easy to do this kind of thing on a mission trip in some third world country. Because you think, just I got 10 days here. I can do anything for 10 days. I can eat anything for 10 days. I can serve in any kind of way for 10 days. It's really hot, but it's fine. I'll go home eventually. It's, it's much harder to live with the mindset of Christ when there's no end date in sight. Like the end date is, I'm dead. The rest of my life, as a follower of Jesus, I'm meant to live my life in union with Jesus Christ through the death and suffering and the resurrection and new life. And in so doing, through humble service, look after those who are around me. In my household, in my church, in my community, in my school, because Easter is not a date on the calendar. It's a brand new reality that we live into each and every day.
the question becomes this, am I washing the feet of my children? I need to wash the feet of my children sometimes. But am I, am I living my life in such a way that I'm, I'm demonstrating service to them? Am I serving my wife? Am I serving my friends? Am I serving my enemies? Am I serving people in powerful positions or people who can offer me nothing in return? Am I willing to be a humble servant in union with Jesus? And here's why this is so important. It's because the understanding within the scriptures, Paul's understanding, the writings of the gospels, Jesus' understanding is that for those of us who would follow Jesus, we are meant to be leaders in the world. Leaders in service in the world. We are meant to be cities on a hill, lights that shine. We are meant to be the hope to the hopeless. And the problem is, many of us see humility and servanthood as a sign of weakness rather than a sign of strength. We couldn't possibly stoop that low to do that particular thing. That would be weak. No, no. If we hold the same mindset as Jesus, that's what strength looks like, to be willing to do such a thing. Someone much smarter than me once said, if serving is below me, then leadership is beyond me. If I'm not willing to serve, then I'm not willing to be a true leader. I'm not willing to take up the mantle that's been given to me as a follower of Jesus. Pastor and writer and speaker Tim Keller, one of his books, tells a great story, and it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a far-off kingdom. One day, there was a farmer who grew an enormous carrot. How about that? He took it to the king, and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown, and I will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect. The king touched and discerned the man's heart. So when the man turned, the king said, Wait, You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land so that you might freely, as a gift, produce more in your humility. And the farmer was amazed, he was delighted, and he left rejoicing. There was another nobleman in the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said to himself, if that farmer can receive a plot of land in return for a carrot, what if I were to give the king something even better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome white stallion, not Daniel Stevanis, but of course... He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses. This is the greatest horse I've ever bred and I will ever breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. But the king discerned the man's heart and merely said, I receive your gift and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. And so the king said, let me explain. The farmer was giving me the carrot out of humility, but you were giving me this horse out of entitlement. See, for the one who embraces the new reality of the resurrection life to humbly serve people, we recognize we do this with no expectation of anything in return. In fact, I would argue the greatest reward for living a humble life of servanthood is that you become the kind of person who is marked by humble service. Congratulations. Can't eat it, can't spend it, can't put it on a shelf. But that's what the the reward is. I become a person who is servant-minded. I become a person who is generous. I become a person who loves people. I become a person who has compassion and mercy and love as a part of my nature. There is no greater gift. The people that we are honoring today, healthcare workers, frontline workers, I know did not serve over the past few years with an expectation of any kind of reward. 
I know many of them. And the fact that we even would do something like this on a weekend felt a little funny to me because it's like, they don't want a pat on the back. They were just doing what they had signed up to do. They're being faithful to their call. They did it because they saw lives of people and they saw them as valuable and worthy. And so they're willing to get up each and every morning and, and, and show up again and again and again. But it's a small way of recognizing their selfless actions. See, Paul writes again about this unity with Jesus, this, this tuning to the life of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, this other letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes, expounding even more on what we've already discussed. Here's what he says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. He says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we, we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. Again, he's uniting us, not just to the suffering, but also to the resurrection, being tuned to Jesus' life and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You might know this part, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. It is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is by God's grace that you've been offered mercy. It is by God's grace that you have been offered love. What Paul says is this grace, compassion, mercy, love that's been given to you, it's been given to you so that you might demonstrate to the world around you the incomparable grace and mercy of God. And then Paul says, here's how that happens. You have to recognize you are a masterpiece, a handiwork of God that has been created with plans to do good things far before you ever showed up on the planet. You are meant to do good things in the world so that God might receive glory, not for yourself, because Paul says there is no reason for us to boast. It's a gift. It's all a gift from God. Paul, again, uses a very important and specific Greek word here when he says you are God's handiwork. This word is the word poema, and it means workmanship, masterpiece, handiwork. It's where we get our English word poem. It's, it's a beautiful creation, one that God dreams up on his own. And so you, me, we, we are handiworks of God. He has crafted us. He has created us with an intention for a purpose, on purpose, to do good work in the world so that people might see it and become aware of the incomparable grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. It's not just for you. You are meant to be a conduit of God's grace. So yesterday was my birthday. I turned 29. Was it funny? This should not be funny. Again, I turned 39. And um, while I was gone, when I came home then, I found that my children had written me birthday cards. And they took construction paper and they drew all kinds of beautiful, wonderful things. And my son, Eli, is a bit of an artist. And so he, he drew, drew awesome things like a Dogecoin dog and other things on my birthday card. And beautiful things written. My son, Owen, is so awesome. He made a great card and he wrote inside, Dad, you're the greatest dad in the word. 
I assume that means I'm a preacher. Also, my daughter, uh, Murray, beautiful. There's nothing inside, and it's just squiggly marks, but it was very nice. And then my niece and nephew got in on the act, and so my, my nephew, Reese, made a card for me and misspelled my name, but it's very nice of him. And then Gray, my niece last night, brought me a card late before they all went home, and she wrote this in here. She said, I love you because when you preach at the church, you teach everyone how to love God. She said, I love you because when I stay at your house for lunch, you always make the best food. <laughs> By that, I mean, she means like pizza and things. But when I got these kind of cards, I mean, you could look at these things and be like, listen, go to Hallmark, people. Like, you know, they're prettier. They come in little envelopes and you can write them that says the thing that you want to say. You don't have to write all that stuff. It's not on construction paper, markers, whatever. It's spelled correctly. You know, all these things. But I don't know about you, but when I see something like that, I'll take that any day. That's a masterpiece. Like, this is the kind of stuff that goes in the box. We keep this. You know, so one day when they get married, we get to make fun of them about it. But this is, this is a handiwork. This is a work of art. This, this is a masterpiece. And there might be some of you this morning who, when you hear that you are a masterpiece of God, you are God's poema, you are created on purpose and for a purpose, some of you are like, no, 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 I'm no hallmark. Like, I, I'm something else. I'm construction paper, and even that is like a stretch for me. You have to know something. You, me, we, no matter who you are, you have been gifted and graced by the creator God with gifts and skills that are needed by the world. You've been placed in the place that you are at right now, even if it might seem so insignificant. Listen, I just, I just dip ice cream. I just do this thing. I just do that thing. doesn't matter. You've been placed there for a reason. And the reason is this, that you might demonstrate the incomparable grace and mercy of Jesus to the people around you through good works that have been planned for you long ago because you are a masterpiece. You've been made by God and to express the humble and servant nature, the mindset of Jesus Christ, it comes out in the way that you live your life. We were created to humbly serve as a way of illuminating Jesus. You were made to lift people up. You were made to be a small group leader. You were made to serve kids and youth at this church. You were made to serve the single mom in your neighborhood. You were made to foster that child or adopt that newborn. You were made to be generous with your resources that others might be blessed. You were made to be a nurse, a pastor, a teacher, a mom, a dentist, a dancer, a farmer, an engineer, a coach, and so on. But not just that. That you would do so in such a way that people would experience the incomparable grace, mercy, love of Jesus. A good way to think about this, Frederick Beatner wrote this. He said, the place God has called you to, the reason you were created, the reason you are tuned to Jesus is because wherever that place is that your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, that is what you're called to. Where your deep gladness and the world's great hunger, those two things collide. That is what you're here for. That is why you've been made. So have the same phroneo, the same mindset of Christ Jesus who humbly served the world, laying aside his life to give hope to everyone. 
the late evangelist D.L. Moody wrote this, following words in his Bible next to Isaiah 6, 8. He wrote this, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. What has God called you to? Where can you live out this servanthood nature, the humble nature of Jesus? Your homes, your workplace, and your family, church, and community. Where can you live this out and demonstrate the incomparable riches of God's grace, mercy, and love? Let's pray together. Jesus, first, I want to apologize for the times that I look at my life and I see certain dates or appropriate places where I might live my life for you. And the rest of my days, I live for myself. Forgive me for that. Would you free me up, God, to live out this resurrection reality, to serve those around me in humility and love? I pray for every person here this morning, God, that you might begin to speak to their hearts and help them see where perhaps, God, you have placed them for a reason. You've given this gift for a reason. I pray for you to awaken their hearts, God, to service. Awaken their hearts to compassion. Awaken their hearts to see those who are in need around them. And Father, I pray they might meet those needs with joy. I pray that they would come alive in doing so. Thank you for this new resurrection reality. May we live it every second, minute, hour of our days. We love you, God. Would you meet us here this morning? It's your name that we pray and everyone said, amen.